0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, if you're using a few Bible this morning, you'll want to turn to page 1132. 1132, we're going to be looking at Romans 8 verses 29 and 30 this morning, so if you'll open to Romans 8. I was speaking with a guy the other day who had uh, recently experienced his first airplane flight across the United States. He has grown up in this Southern California area, and so his, his pool of experience is overcrowded freeways and congestion and just a, the amount of people packed into a small area. And so now he's in an airplane and he's flying over the United States, and he said, wow, this place is big. There's a lot of wide open space here in this country. And some of it's absolutely gorgeous. And you know, I was thinking about that and it sort of illustrates what can happen in our own lives. We can get caught up in uh, here and now and, and lose sight of the big picture of life. The details can press in on us and we, we don't really have that big, broad scope of what's going on. That can particularly happen when we're going through something that's really painful or something that's really discouraging. We're caught right in the moment and it seems like this is going to go on forever and ever and ever. So it's really, really important, I think, to, to be able to get a larger perspective on life. To pull back to get in an airplane, as it were, and and get up high over it all and take a good look at things and and to see what it really looks like. That will help us not to be overwhelmed by what's going on in the here and now. And the verses before us this morning in in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 really enable us to do just that. It's an an opportunity to get a great big picture of what God's doing. Let me just read for you. I'm going to go back to verse 28 and begin there. But let me read 28 to 30. Paul says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called and whom he called, these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified you'll remember from last week that paul makes an amazing promise in verse 28 here when he says that all things work together for good you'll also remember that in the context of this section of romans 8 the all things is a is a reference to suffering it's a reference to the difficulties in life that That God causes those things to work together for good. To bring about good in the life of the child of God. Now here in verses 29 and 30, he's kind of continuing on with that. And he's going to define what that good is. The basis on which this whole promise resides. There are five verbs here in this section, verses 29 and 30. Five verbs and together they form an unbreakable chain, an unbreakable chain. What Paul's doing for us here is he's he's pulling back the curtain on the mystery of redemption. He is going to reveal to us here. He's going to speak about things that are deep things, hidden things. He pulls back that curtain and he gives us just a a glimpse and he does it. By forming what I call this chain of redemption. Each of those five verbs forming a link in that chain. A chain that stretches the length of creation. A chain that firmly connects God's sovereign election of His children all the way to their future glorification. So the chain begins in eternity past and stretches all the way to eternity future. This morning we're going to examine five links in an unbreakable chain of redemption so that we'll take comfort in our present pilgrimage. The big idea here is when we're done, that we will take great comfort in the present pilgrimage. That is the stuff of life today, the here and the now, will fall into the perspective of God's great sovereign work. This chain is the anchor of our soul. So let's take a look at it. First link in this chain, and I've given it to you on your handout there. The first link of this chain in verse 29 is the word foreknowledge. For whom he foreknew. Foreknew is actually the the verb. Now we're going into deep water here. Take your oxygen tank, put on your mask, we're going in deep. We're following Paul into the deep end of the pool, as it were. And to do this, we need to be willing to think clearly. We need to be willing to think biblically. We need to be willing to let the Word of God shape and inform our understanding of these matters. As we go through this section together, verses 29 and 30, there are going to be a number of questions, I'm sure, that will come to your mind. Some of them we will answer this morning and part of this sermon, and others of them we will answer in future sermons, particularly as we move forward into Romans 9, 10, and 11. But we'll probably not get them all. And that's just the way it is. When one bumps up against the mysteries of God, there is a place where you just can't answer the questions. But we'll look at a few of them together this morning. So, first link in this chain, let's begin. For whom he foreknew. Prognosko in the Greek, it's just two words together. Pro means before. Gnosko means to know. It's a compound verb. It means to know before. To know before. Literally, to know ahead of time. That's what the word means for new to know ahead of time. And actually, it's used that way. in over in Acts 26, verse five, I'm going to give you scripture citations throughout the day here. I'm not going to turn to very many of them or we'll get buried. So just jot them down. You have to look on your own. But Acts 26, verse five, Paul uses the verb or actually Luke does speaking of Paul. And it refers there to the fact that the uh, the Jews of Paul's day had known about his previous history as a Pharisee. They had known about him from before. Second Peter chapter three, verse seventeen. the verb is used in the same way, similar way there. So to know ahead of time prognosco to foreknow to for he foreknew, to know ahead of time. and because of that simple meaning some think that that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 29, for whom he foreknew. And so the idea is is that God knows something ahead of time regarding each and every person. And on the basis of that idea, the the next step in logic is, is that God knows ahead of time who will believe the gospel and who will not. Who will believe the gospel and who will not. And Another way to say that is God foresees or foreknows a person's faith. But on the basis of that foreseen faith or that faith that's known about ahead of time, they are predestined unto salvation. Notice again, look at the verse, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So you have foreknowledge and predestination put side by side here. So the idea is is that God knows ahead of time those who will believe the gospel. And because he knows who they are that will believe the gospel, he predestines them unto salvation. That's the way the idea is developed. Let me say that I absolutely agree that God does foresee a person's faith. I absolutely agree with that. He does know ahead of time who will believe and who will not. In fact, I'm persuaded to the depth of my person that he knows exactly who will believe the gospel and who will not believe the gospel. But attractive as the concept may at first appear that Paul saying that God predestines unto salvation based on knowing ahead of time who will believe and who will not. That's not what the text says. That's not what he means here in verse 29, when he talks about a believer being foreknown by God. So let me develop this a little bit for you. Okay. Some observations on foreknowledge. First, take a look back at the verse. It's important to understand and to see that Paul is speaking about people, not events, for whom he foreknew. Whom, the pronoun whom is the object of the verb. Look at it again. Paul is saying that God foreknew people. He foreknew individuals. And on the basis of knowing those individuals ahead of time, he predestined them unto salvation. He does not say, Paul does not say that God foreknows an activity. Look at that verse. It does not say that he foreknows an activity such as believing. And on the basis of that activity, he predestines. It says he foreknows people, not events. It's important. Also, notice the linkage in the chain here. Those whom God foreknows, he predestines, and they ultimately end up as those whom he glorifies in verse 30. So those whom he foreknows, he predestines, and as we work through the links of the chain, they end up being glorified. So if the basis of his predestination is the fact that they will someday believe, then the ground of their salvation, the basis of their salvation lies not in God, but in them. And that contradicts Paul's very, very clear teaching in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, what? Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. So what does he mean when he says, for whom he foreknew? The idea of God knowing God people, communicates something much more than mere intellectual acquaintance. When God knows someone, he's talking about more than simple intellectual knowledge. It communicates the idea of love, intimacy, and relationship. In fact, very at the very beginning of the Bible, Adam knew Eve and she what? She conceived a child. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. It was put together around 200-250 BC, and it uses this same Greek word "prognosko" to translate the Hebrew word "yata," which means to know. To know. And it's interesting to see the passages where this occurs in the Old Testament those places that speak of God knowing either a person or a group of people. And in all of those, it speaks of relationship. For example, Genesis. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19. God is speaking. He says, for I have, and it's translated in the NASB, chosen him. But it's literally, I have known him. I have chosen him, Genesis eighteen nineteen, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God knew Abraham. And most Bible translations. Translated chose God chose Abraham. The same word is used over in Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 5. It says, before I formed you in the womb, God speaking about Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. The context there, you See how God knew Jeremiah, consecrated Jeremiah, appointed Jeremiah. It's speaking about a relationship with Jeremiah. He knew him. Amos, chapter 3, verse 2. The prophet says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Speaking there about the nation of Israel, same verb, to know. Translated, to choose. So in these, and there are many other Old Testament passages, this this, uh, Hebrew verb, yada, translated proganosko, is speaking about knowing, but it's speaking about intimacy, it's speaking about love, it's speaking about relationship, and in fact it's translated many times in the English Bible by choosing. God chose these individuals. This relationship idea carries into a number of the New Testament uses, of this verb as well. In fact, in this very epistle, you can go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 11, verse 2. Paul is addressing the, uh, the big burning question about what about Israel? What about Israel? They have not believed. Have they been cut off permanently from redemption? Paul answers, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Same verb. Whom he foreknew. Clearly, in this context, Paul is establishing and developing the the reality that there is a relationship, a love relationship between the God of Israel and his people. A relationship that Paul will go on to show has not been permanently severed. In fact, it's not been severed at all. Second Timothy, chapter one, verse nine. Oh, pardon me. Wrong place. First uh, Peter one twenty. We'll get to second Timothy later. First Peter, chapter one, verse twenty. You don't have to go there, but it says, for he that is Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world, speaking not about something that the father knew the son would do but talking about the love relationship, the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son in eternity past. So when when Paul speaks about God knowing His people, it's practically synonymous with the idea of love. Loving His people. It's a love relationship. Those whom He foreknew, back to Romans 8, verse 29 would be, you could translate it as well, those whom He foreloved. Those whom He loved ahead of time. He loved them. Foreknowledge is the sovereign, distinguishing love of God. The sovereign, distinguishing love of God. It is very closely related the biblical doctrine of election, election, Deuteronomy, chapter seven, verse seven and eight. Just listen. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he had swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from uh, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose the nation of Israel, that insignificant people, to elevate them to the place where they would receive the covenant of God, access to the creator of the universe, through their Old Testament rituals? The answer is, it's because He loved them. The answer is, is, because He loved them. That's what He tells us. It's not because of anything inherent in them. It's not because God looked down the corridors of time and saw the, what fine people they would be. It's not because God know, knew ahead of time how obedient they would be. In fact, God knew exactly ahead of time how disobedient they would be and what a poor specimen they would be of people and yet he loved them and chose them ahead of time now there is clearly in this concept of foreknowledge whom he foreknew a a time element a time element it's in the preposition pro or before god is not time bound god lives outside of time time is the creation of god But there is a sense in which God interacts in time. So when did God love his people? What's the before he's talking about? When he foreknew them, that is, and he loved them before. Before what? The answer is, is before time began. Before time began. Before the creation of the world. Back before Genesis one one. Ephesians chapter one verse four. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Second Timothy one nine, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, Paul says. From all eternity. When did God set His love upon His people? Before time began. Before time began. When Paul says here, verse 29, Romans 8, For whom he foreknew, he is focusing our attention upon the electing love of God for those who will someday become His children. So there, are, there is a group of people that God loves in a very special way. And He has set that love upon them. But when Paul says here, verse 29, for whom He foreknew, he doesn't tell us the destination of where those people are going, where those special people are headed. So if we want to know where they're going, we need to look at the next link of the chain. Okay? Okay? Time for the second link of the chain. For whom He foreknew, look at it, He also predestined. He also predestined. This is your second link in the chain. He predestined them. Simply put, it means to appoint or determine beforehand. That's what the word means. To appoint or determine beforehand. That's what this verb means. It's used that way in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. It speaks about the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was appointed or was determined beforehand. It says, Acts chapter 4, verse 28. That's what Peter tells us. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul uses the same verb and he speaks about the wisdom of the cross. And he says the wisdom of the cross compared to the wisdom of humanity is something that God has determined or appointed beforehand. That is that the cross will triumph and prevail. She was in Ephesians chapter one, verse five and verse eleven to refer to believers, Christians, appointed or determined beforehand. Before what? Back to that time question, right? When did this appointment Take place? When did this determination take place? Just like foreknowledge before the world was ever created. Before the world was ever created. All whom God loves, He has appointed or determined to arrive at a particular destination. Everyone. Everyone that God has loved in this way, He has punched their ticket, as it were, to arrive at a certain location, a certain destination someday. Not a location, but a destination. When I first came to the faith in Jesus Christ, I I wondered sometime why God chose me for salvation. A question occurred to me. I knew it couldn't be because of any good thing that was in me. I knew that. Because I knew there was no good thing in me. I was exactly the way the Scripture described and I knew it. I was an enemy of God. Romans 5, verse 10. I was drowning in my own sin and rebellion. I was no more looking for God than the man on the moon. I was running from him. I wanted nothing to do with him. I was at war with him and he with me. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, he made me alive together with Christ. For by grace, I have been saved. Right. Romans two verses four and five. I didn't go looking for God. God came looking for me. But why did He choose me? Why did God choose me? It was clearly not because of any good within me. And it was not because of any foreseen good within me. For there is no good that resides in me. All of my good works are as filthy rags. There's nothing in me that would incline Him my way. Why did He choose me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Am I the only one who's so neurotic that would... You want to ask that question? I mean, Lord, I mean, and I, I mean, I think in a in a in a spirit of submission, I think, just you know, Lord, why me? Why did you choose me? I got I got nothing to give you. Why did you choose me? Verse twenty nine. It's a great verse. This is a really good verse. Because the answer to the question is here in this verse. Not only the answer to the question, God, why did you choose me? But but the ultimate purpose for my life and for yours. That's a great verse. It answers the question, why did you choose me? And where am I going? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Take a look at it. To become conformed to the image of His Son. Marked out, determined, appointed to become like His Son. God chooses and predestines certain individuals for the express purpose of making them like His own Son. In both their character and their destiny. Ephesians 1, verse 4, He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Ephesians 1, verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons, that is, to the state of sonship. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. God has determined that something is going to happen To those upon whom He set His love. And that is that they are going to become like His Son, Jesus Christ. That is their destination. That is their purpose in life. They're going to become like Christ. Not in some vague or general sense. Specifically, they are going to become like sons. Take a look at that verse again conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has determined, He has appointed, and He did it before the creation of time, that a certain group of people are going to be just like Jesus Christ. They're going to have a family resemblance that is unmistakable. We had a bit of a laugh around our home this last week or so. Our son, uh, William, left about three months ago for the Marine Corps, and uh, he's been in boot camp all that time. And he's been writing letters home and saying, uh, you yeah, have lost a lot of weight and, you know, I've changed and you, maybe you won't even recognize me. And so last week there was a, a photo of his platoon posted on the Internet. And we have been anxiously awaiting the first picture of him after he had gone away. And there are about 70 guys in this picture. And so we're scanning this picture, carefully, carefully trying to find our son amidst all of these, these um, marine recruits. And we couldn't find him in the picture. So we looked again, and we still couldn't find him. And so we got other people involved to try to help us find him. And that led to a, a big discussion about the shape of his ears and his nose and, and his mouth. I think his mouth turns down. No, I think it's straight. You know, his ears are close to his head. No, I think they're, I mean, it was a really interesting online chat about his anatomy. So we could try to pick him out of this photo and we're looking for family resemblance. That's what we were looking for. We're saying, well, you know, my ear, unattached earlobe, you know, whatever. That's what we were doing, trying to find this picture of our own son. The really funny part is is that uh, later we found he wasn't even in the picture at all. So we had like five top contenders and we were rating them. And he was not even in the picture. <laughs> oh man. But see it's not like that with the Children of God. It's not like that with the Children of God. Our family resemblance can't be missed. Can't be missed. It's not hard to pick us out of a crowd. Because God is determined to show through us. See, God is at work. He is going to do this. We're talking about God here now, right? We're talking about the one who spoke the universe into existence. He said, let there be light and boom, there's light. This God has determined that I'm going to look like Christ. And so are you. It's going to happen. There's going to be no looking around the photograph saying, what well, do you think he's there? <laughs> There'll be no doubt. Just As the Father determined that His Son would take on human nature in order to purify it and exalt it, He at the same time appointed us to partake of that purity and glory. That is an amazing concept. We will resemble Christ. God has determined that we'll look like Him. We will look like Him in our moral character We will look like him in our future glory and beloved. Yes, we will look like him in our present sufferings. Guaranteed. It's the end to which we have been predestined. And that's why Paul says, verse 28, let your eyes go there again. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. How do you know it, Paul? Because I know that God has determined to make his children look just like his son. Wow. To the praise of his glory. Three times he says it in Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of His glory. Paul speaks of it a little bit differently here. The end of verse 29. Conformed to the image of His Son, that He, that is the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Why did God save me? It wasn't for my happiness It wasn't so that I would escape damnation, rightfully do. It's not even strictly speaking for my holiness. He has redeemed me and he has redeemed you, assuming he has this morning, for the specific purpose of making a new people. To take those who were formerly His enemies and now adopting them as His sons that they might join His preeminent Son in glory. That's what Paul says. And display forever the grace of God to all who would look on, including the angelic realm. Jesus, look again, is the firstborn. The preeminent one. The eldest among a vast family of brothers, if you will. He is the eldest son. By causing Him to stand forth as this firstborn, by making Him the firstborn, what God has done is He has made His Son, Jesus Christ, the focal point of all history. All human history All redemptive history comes down to this one focal point. It is the focal point of the universe. All point to Christ. Wow. What does that mean to you and me here and now? Wow. That means I've got purpose in life. I have real purpose purpose in life i've got meaning to my life and that purpose that meaning transcends the day-to-day stuff it doesn't matter what's going on good or bad it doesn't matter because i'm going somewhere and i've got real purpose it also means that the suffering of this life the hardships of this life are the means by which God accomplishes that greatest goal. See, suffering is not random, folks. It's not pointless. It's accomplishing a purpose. It's making you like Jesus Christ, which is God's ultimate purpose for all that He's doing. means that no matter how hard life gets, I must not give up on God. Because God's not giving up on me. See, God's still at work in my life. It may be some time when I'm having a hard time seeing it. I'll admit it. But God hasn't left me alone. He hasn't abandoned me. He's at work in me. He's accomplishing His predetermined purpose for me. He loves me. Up to this point, Paul's been uh, describing God's work before time began. Right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He has securely anchored his chain, his golden chain here, if you will, in eternity past. He's now going to stretch it through time to eternity future and anchor it again on the other side. This great chain is going to stretch right across all of creation. And it takes us to our third link. The third link in this great chain, calling. Verse 30. In whom He predestined, these He also called. Do you see it? In whom He predestined, these He also called. Last week, we talked a fair amount about the calling of God. And I'm not going to go back through all of that again. We were talking in verse 38. We discussed this. The calling spoken of here is the irresistible summoning of a sinner from spiritual blindness and death into the glorious light of the gospel. That's what Paul means when he says called. It means that God accomplishes this work of grace and he does so through the external invitation of the gospel message. But it is an irresistible call for those whom he has foreknown and predestined. They will come to an exact correspondence to Jesus Christ. Now it's important here. Just to again look at the text with me. It's important to see that this chain doesn't have any drops along the way. Nobody dismissed. Nobody falls out of line. You see that? For whom he foreknew he also predestined. Down to verse 30. Whom he predestined. These he also called. And whom he called. These he also justified. Whom he justified. These he also glorified. It doesn't say. For whom he predestined, most of them he called, and of those he called, half of them he justified, and of those he justified, two or three were glorified. Okay, it doesn't say that, does it? There are no dropouts along the way. When you're clipped into this chain, it cannot fail. It will take you from eternity past to eternity future. It is the golden chain of redemption. It is the means by which you are fastened to the great plan of God. Jesus said it this way, John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is comfort. This is comfort in the midst of crying. Takes us to our fourth link. Justification, verse 30 again. Whom He predestined, He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. These He justified. What Paul's doing here is he's just reaching back into the early part of this book and we spent a long time i think a year maybe working through those chapters on justification justification i'm going to just to review your memory okay it's the amazing work of god whereby guilty sinners are acquitted right and credited with the righteousness of jesus christ they are brought into the presence of god through the cross work of christ all their sin laid on him and punished all of his righteousness credited to their account they are justified before god See how powerful this is. You're justified this morning. If you have by faith embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have said to God, God, I am a sinner, I am guilty before you, I am deserving of eternal punishment for what I have done and what I have not done for what I have thought and what I have not thought. I am a rebel at heart. Please be merciful to me for the sake of Jesus Christ. Count my sin to him out His righteousness to me. If you will by faith do those things, you are justified, the Bible says. That is an expression of your justification. And that, beloved, takes you all the way to glory. You see it? Verse 30. These He also glorifies. Wow. That's the end of the story. That's the end. I know how it ends. (laughs) And it ends well. It ends well. I mean, there's stuff going on today that's not so good. And maybe you're here this morning and your life's not so good. Paul doesn't say in verse 28, by the way, that all things are good. He just says God causes all things to work together for good. We're not denying the reality of hardship and suffering. We're not denying that sometimes in life it's really, really bad. What we're saying is get up in the airplane. Take a big, long look at it all. See the end from the beginning. Recognize the reality that God is at work and He has taken you someplace and He's going to get you there. He's going to get you there. In fact, notice verse 30. These He also glorified. It speaks in the past tense. Even though our glorification, that is that our glorification, our, our full conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Our full likeness with Christ is yet future. Paul speaks of it as a done deal. He's he a past tense verb. That's because this reality is certain. It is absolutely certain. From the moment God determined... This great chain of redemption. From the moment He forged it, its end was certain. He hasn't built it link by link as time goes on. It was determined from the beginning. It was fastened into eternity past and eternity future all at the same time. Those upon whom He has set His love. He has determined to make them like Jesus Christ. And He will subjugate every single circumstance of their life to bring them to that picture. He has justified them that they might now enter forever into His presence. And in His mind they have been glorified by union with Christ. It's all done a done deal no fallouts along the way nobody drops out of line everybody finishes the race so what's the big takeaway here this morning what's the big takeaway from these two verses what do I go home with apprehend by faith that God is in control by faith Put your arms around that. God is in control, and He has appointed both the end and the means by which He will bring glory to Himself. It is through you. So, when out of my deep love for Him, I seek to diligently pursue Christ and courageously proclaim Him, beloved, I know I can't fail. I can't fail. God is going to do it. Nothing can prevent my final salvation. Nothing. That's the anchor of my soul. That is the anchor of my soul. And when by faith I grab hold of this great chain, nothing, nothing can shake me. Nothing. When my faith wavers, when I grow tired and weary, when I wonder if it's all worth it, I've lost hold of the chain. I need to go back to the Word and let the Spirit wrap my arms around it again. And know that God loves me And he's going to take me all the way to the finish line. That's the kind of truth you can build a life on.